Well, good morning. This morning we have a, uh, a special treat for you. Uh, we're going to uh, ask the speaker that's here for our missions conference to uh, just open God's Word for you this morning. As you know, this uh, this evening we have a potluck together, a chance to uh, to gather and and uh, worship to hear um, Dr. Myers again. You know that one of the reasons that I so enjoy uh, missions conference or any time we talk about missions is because we catch a glimpse of how great our God is, how big He is, how. Uh, how uh, he's acting, he's moving all over the world. And it's so easy for us to be so absorbed in what's going on in our lives and our relationships that we fail to recognize what a, what a great God we serve. Uh, our purpose here, every time we come together, is to, to see him a little more clearly, to understand him a little better. And as we see him as he is, let our hearts overflow in worship. And that's, that's our goal for the next, uh, Three evenings. But our uh, speaker is uh, someone who is uh, somewhat uniquely uh, in a position to, to give us a glimpse of what God is doing all over the world. He's the vice president uh, in charge of uh, missions and evangelism for World Vision. As a result, he does a lot of traveling, seeing what God's doing all over the world. He is uh, the executive director of MARC, which is Missions, Advanced Research, and Communications. MARC is an organization that, 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 that surveys what God is doing all over the world, uh, seeing what missionaries are doing, seeing what the local churches are doing, trying to get a feel, a research for all of what God's doing throughout the world. It's a, it's a task that's too big for any organization, but they pull a lot of that information together for us to use He's also on the administration committee for the Luzon Committee for World, Evangeliz- uh, World Evangelization. Now, this uh, committee, the Luzon Conferences, have been one of the tools that God has used most powerfully in the last uh, decade or so to mobilize and to coordinate, to stimulate the uh, uh, missionaries from all over the world, third world missionaries, which is a, a great force that God has risen up in, in our day to, to reach other nations to reach other people, other tribes with the gospel. So Dr. Myers has had a chance to, to, to be in touch with all of these things. But he's also familiar with what God's doing in, in our country, in our, our culture. He is the chairman of Evangelicals for Social Action, uh, aware of what's going on and, and encouraging uh, evangelicals to be involved in their own communities. He's also an elder at his home church, so he's aware of the needs of people in congregations like ours. With all of these, it puts him in a a unique place just to give us a a feel, a glimpse for for what God is doing in our world so that we can see our God more clearly and worship him. As I said this morning, we've asked him to just come and and open the word. I wanted to give you a a taste of his ministry so that you would... uh, hunger for more, want to come and hear him this evening and the next couple of nights. Like I said, I expect to see all of you at the potluck. I'm not sure how we'll fit you all in, but we'll work it out. Um, but again, we wanted to start by just giving you a chance to hear him and letting God use him to minister. Besides all of the qualifications that I've already listed, um, he also uh, is, has dark hair, a mustache, and wears a blue blazer. 
so you know he has something to say. So, Dr. Myers. I was just told if I see a green light, I'm on. I don't know if that's good or bad. Good morning to you all. My, uh, my best qualification you haven't heard yet. I am the <clears throat> father of James and Brooke. And when you have children who are the ages of 12 and 15, uh, you better have your act together. You better know what you believe. And you better be light on your feet. As all of you who either have teenagers or who have had teenagers will recall. Those of you who are teenagers know that we are parents and we are clueless. And there's nothing I can say to you. (laughs) Other than the fact I once thought the same thing about my parents. I'm told that even though as parents that, that somehow we turn stupid about when our kids hit the age of 14 that there is hope because around 2021 we get smart again. So hang in there. There's a word of hope. It's very gracious of you to open your pulpit to someone you don't know. Um, That always um, really impresses me about the Christian community is that we will do that. We'll we'll let someone we don't know from some other church come in and and talk to us from the Word. Um, That's a very gracious thing, and I want you to know that I take it very seriously, and I hope that I will not abuse the privilege. I'd like to tell you a little bit more about myself so that you'll get some sense of of where I'm coming from as I share with you this morning. I became a Christian when I was 30 years old as an adult. I was a kid in the 60s with all of the things that that implied. Did not grow up in a Christian home. And the faith came to me uh, as an adult struggling to find my place in the world. And in the process of making sense out of that, I joined an organization called World Vision International. Um, I came across my job description, uh, or sorry, my the little form I filled out when I was hired. It, I'd stuck it in a file, and I happened to come across it. I wouldn't have hired me. Um, I was totally unqualified for the job that they gave me. But it's 20 years later now, and if you hang around long enough and you listen long enough, you can learn a little bit and muddle through. I've lived in Africa. I met my wife at World Vision. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, that's why I joined World Vision. And uh, three months after we were married, they sent us to Nairobi. And having your first cross-cultural experience and being newlyweds um, is probably not the best formula for a happy marriage. Uh, But in our case, it was perfect, as God's ways often are. And um, so I speak out of that experience of having been in villages, um, listened to people very much similar to Simia, who you heard this morning. One of my concerns... One of the areas in which I have continued to be engaged and to struggle in world vision these 20 years is how does a Christian organization keep the ministries of development and relief, which are the two primary things we do, working among the poor, integrated with evangelism? How do you make sure it's really Christian? How do you make sure that people not only have a cup of cold water, but they get to hear about the person that's the source of that water? 
and you are a church in mission. You have quite a reputation, and it's a good one. And so the issues of evangelism and caring for the poor and seeking a more just world are yours as well. And I thought that at least that's one place where our paths might cross. So I want to share with you today an image that comes from Scripture that reflects World Vision's journey and I hope may speak to yours. The text that I'm going to use today comes from the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. It's a long text. I hope you won't mind. But in this chapter, Luke tells us the story of a church that was planted in Philippi. And what I'd like to do is deal with that whole story. So in chapter 11, we pick up the text, Acts 16:11. From Troas, we, now we is Paul and Silas, and they've just been joined by Luke. And there may be others, but there's at least these three. We put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. And from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there, and one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Tiatira, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. And the girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. And Paul finally became troubled. And he turned around and he said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that the hope of making money was gone. They seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they are throwing our city into an uproar. They're advocating customs, unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them stripped and beaten. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully, and upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell, and he fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. And the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, because he thought the prisoners had escaped. 
But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, and he rushed in, and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out, and he asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and all of his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and he was so filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release these men. The jailer said to Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and and Silas are released, and now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without trial, even though we were Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. And they came to appease them and escorted them from prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. And then they left. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the gift of your living word. That, Lord, we can read today a 2,000-year-old story and know that because this is your living word and we are your people, that it is our story today, that we can bring this story here to Boise and know that it will make sense and know that it will speak to us. And so we pray now that your spirit would open our eyes and our ears, that we might hear the things we need to see here and and, and see the things we need to see. For we ask this, Lord, in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. This is a long story. We're very patient. And in it, Paul tells us the story of a church that's planted in Philippi. Now, we learn much more about the church in the book of Philippians, but this is the only account we have of its origins. And it's a story that has, there's really three stories here, and one of the stories has two parts. So I'm going to treat it as four stories. The first is the conversion of Lydia and her household. Then the second story is the story of the Philippian jailer. We're all very familiar with that, but it really has two parts. It has the story of the servant girl, which is why they get thrown in jail. And then you have the story of the Philippian jailer and the salvation of his family. That's the second part. And then finally we have the story of Paul's release from prison. So I'd like to deal with four stories. The story of Lydia, the story of the slave girl, the story of the Philippian jailer, and finally the story of Paul's release. And the reason I do that is that evangelicals have a bad habit. Too often we take a a piece of Scripture or a story in Scripture and we lift it up out of Scripture and we preach on that story as if it was disconnected 
from the story from which it came. And you have to do that. I mean, it's hard to preach on the whole Bible on a Sunday morning. You would get bored and go home. I was told yesterday of a little fella, six years old, that walked up in the middle of the church right about now, after the preacher had been going on and on and on, with his hand up. And this was a church for kids, so that was okay. And he thought, of course, the child wanted to go to the bathroom. So he said, yes, Billy. And Billy said, this servant's gone on too long. It's time to go home, and I'm leaving. (laughs) So when you get bored, choose a six-year-old, send him right here, and I'll shut up, and we'll get out of here. But if we read the stories together... There's meaning in the connections between the stories that we sometimes miss if we extract them. And so I want to deal with a set of stories this morning and see what we can learn. And I would like you to listen, if you would, for the various dimensions of the gospel. I would like you to listen through, through three questions. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ as we hear it in these four stories? For whom was it good news? And how was the gospel expressed? So what, what is the gospel? For whom was it good news? And how was it expressed? Now, we need to put the four stories back into context because they're part of another story, which is the story of Paul's second missionary journey. This story really begins in Turkey. If you go back with me to the opening part of this chapter, we find that uh, in verse 6 that Paul and his companions had traveled throughout the region, all over this western Turkey. And they had done the things that they had set out to do, and they were now looking for what was new that God wanted them to do. And you all know the story. Um, They had wanted to go north, and the text tells us that they were told they shouldn't go. They were kept by the Holy Spirit from going north. And then they decided to turn back and go east, back toward Antioch, where they'd come from. And again, they got a no. It says that the Spirit of Christ would not let them. And they'd come from the south, so it only left them one way to go. And they started going to the west. And they ended up on the coast of Turkey. And this story begins with them asleep at night. And you know the story. Paul has a a dream, a vision this man from Macedonia who says, come and help us. And we're told by Luke that we concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them, and so they went. Would you listen to a dream? Would you listen to somebody else's dream? Would you pack up and cross an ocean because of a dream? Well, these folks did. And because of that, the gospel went to Europe for the first time. And because it went to Europe, it came to the United States. We're listening to a story of our roots. This is where we began. And Philippi was the first stop, which brings us to our text today. Now, what do we know about Philippi? Well, first of all, it was settled from very ancient times. There was copper in the area and gold It had been called Kyrnades until it was seized by Philip of Macedonia, who had the necessary self-esteem to insist that it be renamed after himself. And so it became Philippi. And at the point that Paul and Silas come, it's been under Roman dominion for over 200 years. 
about as long as we've been a nation. So it's very Roman. And now let's look at the first story, the story of Lydia. This is an evangelism story. It's a good place to begin when you're talking about Christian mission. Paul, as he always did, tried to find the people on the Sabbath who were worshiping. And up until now, in Acts, he's always gone to a synagogue. But apparently there is no synagogue here in Philippi. So they go looking for a place of prayer outside the city where they find women who are praying. We know from other sources that you have to have 11 Jewish men to have a synagogue. So the the, the, the the assumption we can make here is that there weren't enough men and it was left to the women to organize worship outside the city. And this is where Paul began. And we need to take note of that because that's where mission always has to begin. God is already working in the places where we go. He is already active. The missionaries don't bring God in the, in the suitcase along with their medicines and other stuff. When we go to talk to a friend, we don't bring Jesus with us. He's already there. He's already at work. And what we have to do is be clever enough to figure out where and how God is working and come alongside. And that's what Paul did. We surmise that Lydia was a businesswoman and probably a very successful one because to be a dealer in purple cloth, you're dealing in an upscale market. Okay, the, the yuppies, they bought the, the purple stuff. The, the, the people who were in positions of power and authority. Uh, she's in the import-export business. So this is a pretty sophisticated lady. And the text says that as she was listening to Paul's message, the Lord opened her heart. And there's another good reminder. God does the evangelism. God does the evangelism. We bring the good news. We share the good news. We try to live the good news. There's lots we're supposed to do, but it is God who opens the heart. It is not our clever sales technique, clever little stories, touching personal testimony, as touching as our testimonies are. It is that God uses those to work in the hearts of someone else. Too often we get to believe that we are the evangelist. And I think we get in trouble when we do that. But God did open her heart, she did respond, and the first church is planted in Europe. And it's a house church. And so this first story tells us that a big part of the gospel is about evangelism. It's about words that explain the good news. It's about saying what Jesus does. It's about an invitation to respond. It's about conversion. It's about baptism. And so it should be, because this is at the center of Christian mission. If people are not being invited to know the one whom we know, we haven't shared the best news that we have. It's worth noting that the gospel comes to Europe through the action of a woman of faith. And if you come Tuesday night, I'm going to talk a little bit about the importance of women in mission. Because as we've researched the history of mission, the role of women has very much been understated. And I think we have something to learn. Let's go on to the second story. 
The second story is about a prophetess. It's about her deliverance. It's about a woman whose name we're not told. She's just a slave girl. And Paul finds himself being followed by this slave girl, but this slave has a special gift. She can tell the future. And we're told that she earned a great deal of money for her owners. But this woman does not profit from her gift, as Lydia did. Her owners profit from her gift. And this spirit within her keeps shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God and are telling you the way to be saved. They were telling, he's telling the truth. This is not a lying spirit. This spirit is saying exactly what's true. It's an echo of what we see in the Gospels, in which it was the spirits and the demons who always were quite clear about who Jesus was. They knew, even when the disciples were confused, and the Pharisees were never able to figure out who Jesus really was. At any rate, Paul becomes troubled, we're told, and then claiming a promise that Jesus had given in the Gospel of of Matthew, says, in the name of Jesus, he commands the Spirit to come out, and it does. Now, at this point, the owners become really angry because they realize their hope of making money is gone. Now, what are they angry about? When they saw this girl, this slave girl, they saw a piece of property, a revenue-producing asset. The girl to them was an economic unit. And that economic revenue-producing asset had just been ruined. Paul had taken away their living, and they were angry. But Paul had seen something else. He had seen not a slave girl, not a prophetess, but a human being. Someone made in the image of God. Someone who was not enhanced because she had a spirit, but in fact diminished, made less valuable because she was controlled by a spirit. Paul saw someone who was not fully herself. We need to learn from this. The gospel is also about liberation. It's also about wholeness. It's about not being ruled by someone else, either by a demon or by a slave owner. The good news of Jesus Christ is that your life does not have to be one of being dominated by anything. You don't have to be oppressed. You don't have to be owned by others. I want to stop here and tell you a story from India. Because it's a similar kind of story. I want to tell you about David. David's about this tall. He's 10 years old. I was sitting in a small village in the southern part of India. And we got there about 10.30 at night. It was terribly late. Uh, You don't get anywhere on time in India. It just is not possible. And these people had been waiting for hours. And the people they'd asked to wait for us were a group of some 20 children who had recently come to the Lord and been baptized in this Hindu village. And a church that had had maybe 8 or 10 members was now a church of 30 members. And they wanted to meet these Christians that were visiting from Madras. 
And we were having fellowship, 10.30 at night. It was a lovely time. And, and I was asked if I wanted to ask any questions. And I said, well, would one of the children share their story? How, how did they meet Jesus? And this David stood up. I wish you could see him because he had flashing eyes. I mean, you, you, everybody was just riveted on this little fellow. And there was power in his voice. And he said, I became a Christian when I learned that Jesus did not want me to look like this. And he pulls up his pantaloons kind of thing, and his legs are all scarred on the back. And there's big welts around his ankles, where he had been chained for 18 months, repeatedly whipped with a hanger. He said, I became a Christian because Christians were the only one in my village who helped me escape my bondage. David was one of several hundred thousand child laborers that rolled beedi in India. Beedi is a little handmade cigarette that's a very cheap tobacco rolled in a leaf, tied in a string. It takes little fingers to roll beedi. It's the poor person's cigarette. It's for the people that can't afford to buy a pack. They buy a cigarette, one cigarette at a time. David's parents had sold him to a BD company as collateral for a $30 loan so that they could marry their daughter properly by Hindu custom. For a $30 loan, David will roll BD from 6 in the morning until 10 at night seven days a week for three or four years. If he doesn't roll enough beady, they beat him. If he tries to run away, they chain him. His daughter, his sister, is a sponsored child. And she wrote the sponsors and said, My brother is in chains. And a couple here in the United States shocked as you are, and said $30, immediately wrote a check for $30. And four months later, David was bought out of his bondage, put in a job training situation where he could learn a new skill, and they started to help him read and write. Now, David did not have a spirit of fortune-telling, but he did have small hands and nimble fingers, And because he had that gift, he was turned into a cigarette-rolling machine. And the good news of the gospel for David was that this is not the way things had to be. That he could be freed, and he could learn a way into a different future. It was the Christian gospel that said, not what the gods have ordained for you. This is not your karma. You will not be punished if you fight. You can be freed. Now, have I just told you an evangelism story? He did become a Christian. Or a liberation story. He was bought out of economic bondage. Where's the proclamation? Where was it? Was the proclamation in the release of the captive or in the telling of the story about Jesus? Or... Is that not a very helpful question at all? The gospel is about liberation. We need to go back to our text. You guys are hungry. You want to go to lunch. We left the slave girl 
She's freed from her spirit. But there's more, because the good news is not always good news for everyone. She had lost the one thing that made her special. She had lost the one thing that got her special treatment from her owners. She was now just a slave girl, but a far less valuable one. The liberation cost the slave girl a great deal. And, of course, this story of deliverance was not good news for the girl's owners either. Because the gospel is not good news for those who occupy positions of power in unjust relationships. Because it says to them, that's wrong. And if you want to know God, you've got to give it up. And most people don't like this. You'll remember that the rich young ruler walked away. The owners of the beady industry in India have people killed when they attempt to prevent children from being sold into forced labor. And the men in our story didn't handle their loss very well at all. And that leads us to the third story. The owners get angry. They tell lies. They stir up controversy. And so... Even though they have carried out the good news and there's this story of liberation, Paul and Silas end up in jail, flogged, their feet in stocks. And we find them in the story at midnight, praying and singing hymns to God while the other prisoners listened. Now, I know that you are very spiritual people. And that if this were your story, that you would be singing prayers and hymns to God in the middle of the night. But I come from Southern California. And my daughter says, I'm a wuss. Had I been wrongly charged, had I been arrested with no cause, had I been beaten, thrown into stocks, locked up in jail, and it was midnight, I think I would have been hurting, angry, irritated, probably talking rather severely with God about what I'm doing here. After all, I'm on your mission, aren't I? I did what I'm supposed to do. There's a church here. Isn't that true? Well, what's wrong with you, and what am I doing here? This is a pretty incredible story, if these guys really were singing and praying in the middle of the night. But it gets stranger. Because now we have a huge earthquake. I come from Southern California. I understand earthquakes. I know what it's like to be bounced all over the floor in the middle of the night. And I can, I can picture doors flying off. That's not a problem. Earthquakes can do that. But earthquakes that can open the chains on your wrists and the lock stocks in your feet, this is a very clever earthquake. <laughs> and what would you think if that happened? Surely... The God who delivered Israel out of Egypt, the God who does mighty works and mighty wonders, has finally acted for justice. The prayers have been answered. Deliverance is at hand. Right? I mean, the jailer sure thinks so. He is so sure that everybody's gone that he doesn't even bother to look. He just gets his sword and gets ready to kill himself because he knows that he will be killed. But Paul calls out and says, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Don't you find this a little incredible? Would you be sitting there? 
I mean, after all, you've been unjustly imprisoned and you're, you're taking it pretty well. You've been praying and singing praises to God and then God answers. There's this earthquake. Everything's wide open. The doors are open. The chains are at your feet. You should rush out, shouldn't you? Praising God. Great witness to the church, this brand new little church in Philippi. Not for Paul. Paul rejected his deliverance. He stayed where he was. And because Paul rejected his deliverance, the Philippian jailer and his family were delivered. They got saved and baptized that very night. So what does this third story in our account of the church in Philippi tell us? The gospel is about signs and wonders, too. You heard that from Simeon. We used to be afraid of the demons. But now when we tell them to go out, they go. When we pray, people are healed, Simeon said. The gospel is about the mighty miracles of God, but we've got to be careful that we get clear on who the miracles are for, who the deliverance is for. Because too often, we automatically think about it being for us. We have problems. Someone is sick or depressed, struggling with alcohol, or even possessed, and we pray for deliverance. And we should. And God does answer those prayers. We all have testimonies. But sometimes the deliverance is not for us. It's for someone else. Sometimes we are supposed to say no to our deliverance so that others can be saved. But we need to move on. The fourth story. I mean, it seems like the story's over, right? I mean, the Philippian jailer's been saved. He's even been baptized in the middle of the night. The magistrates have come and said it was all a mistake. You're free to go. In fact, is the story ought to end right there in verse 36. Go in peace. And they should have gone in peace singing hallelujah. But Paul refuses to be delivered a second time. He won't leave. Can you believe this guy? What's wrong with him? I mean, this is not practical. I mean, it's one thing not to go with the earthquake, because you've got to get the, sailor, the jailer saved, okay? But that's all done now. And there's this little tiny church you've got to think about. And if you make the magistrates angry enough, who's going to get persecuted? Won't be Paul and Silas, because they're going to leave. In fact, as they leave that very day, it'll be that little church. I mean, surely it's time to be a little more low-key, don't you think? Provoking these people is just going to make them angry. So what is Paul thinking of? Well, you see, the Gospel's also about justice. It's about responsible legal systems. It's about holding public authorities accountable for doing what they were put in office to do. You see, Paul wants the magistrates to understand that the only lawbreakers in this story were themselves. Their job as magistrates was to uphold the law, and they didn't do it. So Paul's not leaving until they own that failing. And so he insists that they come down and escort him out of jail. Well, that ends our four stories in Philippi. What did you learn about the many dimensions of the gospel? In what ways did the good news of Jesus Christ find expression in these four stories? Well, we've heard the story of the gospel preached and responded to in the case of Lydia. 
and it led to baptism in a new church. Second, we encountered a gospel of liberation. Liberation from both the demonic and from unjust social relationships. But we also heard a gospel about miracles, signs and wonders, of deliverance. But deliverance that adds to the kingdom, that is for the life of others. It's that kind of deliverance. And fourth and finally, we saw the demand of the gospel for justice and public accountability. Taken together, these stories reveal the whole gospel for the whole of our lives. Not just our Sunday mornings, or our mission conferences, or our prayer meetings. But a God who's in business 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, in the marketplace, in the government, in the schools, in the homes. Christian mission is a very big mission. Often bigger than we allow it to be. Jesus asked us to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Witnesses to what? In Matthew, we're told we are to make disciples of all nations. And you have to read the rest of the sentence. And it says, teaching them to obey everything, everything I commanded you to do. And what did he command us to do? Only two things. We're to love God with everything we have. And we're to love our neighbor as passionately as we love ourselves. The full story of the church in Philippi is about loving God and loving neighbor. Christian witness, if it is fully Christian, needs to be about word, deed, and sign. And this is because the gospel is about evangelism, The gospel is about liberation. The gospel is about justice. It's about being rightly related to God on the one hand and to each other on the other. And don't forget where the mission begins. It was the Holy Spirit that sent Paul and Silas to Philippi. We don't decide where we go. We go where we're sent. And as you think about mission in this church, and as you struggle with issues of mission in the the conference that will take place in the next two days, I'd like you to bring the threads of this story. And then to pray. And ask God, where does he want you to go? What does he want you to do? And how would he like you to do it? Because this is the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord, the Bible is a big book, and it says a lot of things. It's always stretching us, Lord. The gospel is always more than we think it is. It's always before us. And we pray, Lord, that as we seek to follow Jesus, that you would help us, Lord, to keep enlarging our vision, enlarging our hearts, because we do love you and we do want to follow you. We want to be your people. And we ask you, Lord, to help us do this because it is only through the power of your Spirit that we ever can. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.